is there anything you miss about the time where you yourself were a first time filmmaker? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the You Had Me a Curia podcast. I'm your host, Ricky Camilleri. And this week, we're discussing the October collection, Beginner's Luck. A few first films by directors that crushed it right out of the gate. Later, we'll be joined by Oscar-winning producer Adela Romanski, who you heard at the top there. She's going to talk to us about her first film and what it's like working with first-time directors. But right now, I'm joined by Jared Nice. Jared, before we get started talking about these beginner's luck films, tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'm Jared Nice. Uh, I, I do uh, film acquisitions and uh, marketing at Curia. I mean, we're, we're a startup, so I, we do a lot of stuff. But um, <clears throat> yeah, I've... Uh, I'm the newest member of the team. I, I came on a, a few months ago uh, before the launch in July. Um, I guess it's more than a few now, but uh, uh, yeah, and I was at South by Southwest Film Festival for the for the past 20 years. And uh, wow. and I have uh, just, you know, in the great uh, resignation of 2021, <laughs> I was part of that. And so, uh, yeah, it was just time to do something new. This uh, opportunity came along and it sounded really exciting and, I, and it's been super fun. and. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's nice to talk about movies. So I'm assuming, well, based off of you just saying that it's nice to talk about movies, one, two, that you were at <laughs> South by Southwest for 20 years, and now you're at a startup that uh, specializes in curating um, uh, movies for people to watch, a select amount of movies, that you love movies. So, um, you know, how and when did you start <laughs> loving movies? Oh, uh, you know, forever, as long as I can remember it. Uh, you know, I've definitely started by uh, very young, watching movies at the foot of my parents' bed. You know, I would kind of, they had the, a big, like, Paul Bunyan bed, and so I could kind of creep in at the night and then sit at the edge of the bed, and they wouldn't see me. And, you know, my dad was a, uh, a horror fan, and so he'd watch everything from, you know, the Friday the 13th to, you know, just stuff that was like what am i i don't know what exactly i remember friday the 13th i might not remember all of them but i definitely remember i love being scared and i loved uh just you know i don't know there was something about just movies you know and you know so it was always you know growing up uh recommending films to my friends like i you know you watch a film and you're like oh you gotta watch this movie like session nine you gotta watch session nine or you know even just some you know we i was the guy who had all the you know the south park uh you know bootleg tapes in college and you know i'd show my friends raising arizona and i'd show my friends all these movies were like where the like they, you know just was different to them and you know exciting for me to be able to share this love that i had um and then you know you know after i went to school for uh i was a biochem major at ut uh and after doing a couple months of uh mark of uh you know public relations and hospitals, I decided that I can't work and I couldn't do that anymore. Um, and so I, I kind of ran away to Colorado. I, I was a snowboarding instructor. I was a backpack counselor. And then I was like, okay, I can't be a, a 40 year old waiter either uh, living in Colorado. But so I, I came back to Austin and, you know, waited tables, figured out what, what the next phase is. And, and my, my girlfriend, wife, a wife now, girlfriend at the time, her friend was working at the Austin film festival She's like, all you want to do is watch movies and talk about movies. Why don't you go volunteer with these guys and see see if you like it? And so, yeah, you know, a couple of days in, I'm like, wow, this is 
kind of my people. Um, you know, I was offered a job kind of a few days in and I started doing short film programming and uh, the technical side, the, you know, film trafficking, the projectors, all of that kind of stuff. Um, that led me to South by Southwest and I, I was there for 20 years. I, I started as the, the production manager, um, you know, dealing with the projectors and the trafficking of the films and the building of the 35 millimeter prints and, you know, all, all the stuff that that goes with. And over the years, I, I, um, I did more short film programming. I worked as a conference producer uh, and then I became the senior film programmer for about the past 10 years. And, uh, and yeah, so I love movies. I've watched a lot of them uh, at <laughs> South by we'd watch, you know, six, 700 movies a year. If as a feature programmer, that's kind of the, what you do and uh yeah so it's been uh i you know it's this is this is a, a great fit for me i think <laughs> it, it, it must be nice to as much as as much as it was probably great to to watch all of those those mo- those movies every year at, at south by you were watching new movies you were watching like you know the most recent up-to-date probably yeah. haven't even been released may not ever get released movies Correct. and now at curia you kind of get to go into the back catalog and oh, see so things fun. maybe that you have that you that you've already loved or some some new experiences some yeah absolutely um you know especially for the past 20 years i mean i have a pretty good idea of what was out there how it played at festivals how people reacted to them you know if it got bought by who and you know you you look at you know as a now i guess a distributor you kind of look at these you know the availability list from these uh folks and you're just like oh i love all these films how can i how can we put these together in a collection that makes sense that you know it can be digestible by people and you know oh like this film i gotta show this film to people like how can we connect it with the other films and uh Oh, it's 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 way it's a way uh, easier process than than watching you know six seven hundred films and trying to find the ones and you know the need the needles in the haystack. But these are more just like they're all good films. You know everything's solid and it's like but how do you turn it into something where it's um, a fun collection and and what are the films that really stand out too? And so it's, you know they're they're great they're good films they're great films and then those films that you just like can't stop watching and so uh we're trying to you know get more of the the latter of that this we are doing beginner's luck which as i said at the top is uh you know first time filmmakers who 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 really struck big or or made great films right out of the gate how did you guys uh come up with this collection idea and how did you start collecting these movies and figuring out what uh what you were going to put in it you know the way that we we uh, attack a lot of this is um you know we have uh, partners that we work with, everyone from, you know, Paramount, Lionsgate, MGM, um, and then, you know, down the line to like Kino Lorber, IFC, um, 1091, A24. So it's just, you know, you look at all the films that are available and, you know, for us, it's, you go in and you find that you, you just like, what, what do we love out of these, these films? You know, what, 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 which of these films do we just, you know, have a connection to, do we love? And, and then it's more, to, then you kind of take those films you love and you put them in a, in a list or however you want to see it. And then it's like, how do you connect them? And so for this, it was kind of easy. It was like, Oh, well, you know, these, you know, you probably get, you know, start with like a hard eight or something. And um, where it's just an obvious, like, Oh, it's this Paul Thomas Anderson film. If you haven't watched it. And a lot of people haven't watched hard eight, which is interesting, but you know, I guess there's a lot of films out there. Um, But then you're like, okay, then you go down the list and then you have, you know, obviously, you know, we'll talk about all of them, but it's, there's definitely something that uh, is appealing in all these uh, filmmakers that, 
you know, they showed something, they showed some promise, they showed some, you know, directing chops or, you know, they just had a point of view or a vision and, and they were, you know, for whatever happened, they were able to, to fulfill that vision and, and they were able to realize that in the films that they made. Um, and so that was, you know, it's not that hard, <laughs> especially if you love films and you, and you can kind of like take them and, and put them in, and, uh, you know, categorize them in some way. And, and this was, this was a pretty easy one, I think, based on, uh, you know, some of the, some of the other collections are a little bit more esoteric or, uh, you know, you have to kind of, you know, take a step back, but, but th this one was, was fun and easy. Yeah. I like talking about this one because I enjoy, most of these are, are directors that I, I admire or love. Some of them are new discoveries for me, or at least one or two of them are new discoveries for me. And you can use these first films to kind of talk about their entire filmography in some ways where it's right. like, if you liked some of this, you can see a fair amount of that in this, this, this first outing. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's get to it. Let's get started. Uh, right. We have these organized semi-chronologically like we did the last one. And right. I say semi because um, if a movie thematically seems like it ties into another movie, uh, I've, I've kind of lumped those together so we can talk about them uh, Great. that way. But let's start, since we're doing chronologically, we'll start the 90s, which was probably like uh, the best time for a first time independent filmmaker <laughs> cinema has maybe ever had um, yeah. the video, the explosion in the video market and the success of Sundance film festival made it, I would not say easy, but um, uh, the idea of getting money to make a movie a bit more enticing for investors than, than, than maybe it is today. So yeah. you had uh, fairly well-funded um uh, first time films and we're starting with uh, 1994's Little Odessa directed by James Gray starring Tim Roth, Edward Furlong Vanessa Redgrave and Maximilian Schell There is a small world of family close friends and mortal enemies Get up! Fuck up! Did you tell about me? Nobody. Don't insult me, I'll cut it off! A world where loyalty is undying. But I've heard rumors about that mongrel of a son of yours. I will hold you responsible if he's here. And a single offense is remembered forever. He was making a call in the phone booth when the mice found him. A man exiled from his world has returned to his family. Nobody can know I'm here. Not your friends, not any of the relatives, nobody. Have you seen him? Are you, you going to see him? Because I really need to talk to him. The brother he must protect. Your brother is in town, no? Worships him. You've been very strong. I love you. What do you want from me? I just wanted to tell you I understand. The girl he loves fears him. Uh, and this is James Gray, who goes on to do The Yards and goes on uh -huh. to do We Own the Night. Um, as well as the Lost City of Z and Ad Astra, yep. and I think I'm probably forgetting one movie in 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 there. I think there those was something the between ones. those are the big ones. I think there was something between We Own the Night. Oh, Two Lovers. Sure. Um, maybe something else as well. But uh, I love James Gray. I've always been a big fan, fan of James Gray, especially Little Odessa. And this is the story of a hitman played by Tim Roth who returns home to his um, Russian Jewish Brighton Beach neighborhood. Uh, to do a hit and he ends up having to resolve some unfinished family business with his um, it turns out abusive father and his 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 younger brother who's uh, coming of age uh, in this pretty macho uh, crime ridden world um, 
opens with a bang literally <laughs> and then uh proceeds from there and i think one of the things that you get for me with this in terms of it being a james gray movie is that uh you expect it to be your kind of standard crime movie but what you get is a much more nuanced and sensitive uh sort of tragic opera than uh you usually get to see in uh in, in these crime movies he's always been i think criticized for being uh for knowing where the movie for audiences saying that the movies were kind of predictable. I've always felt that that's fine because they're tragedies. And the idea is that, you know, that it's going to be a tragedy. It's watching it unfold uh, and, and seeing how you're going to, you're going to get there. Uh, Odessa has always been one of my favorite James Gray movies. And I, I like uh, all of his movies. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely, it ties in with a lot of the other films in the collection, as far as tone and, um, you know, the storyline as far as, you know, there's a lot of kids involved in a lot of the films that we have. And, you know, another, I guess another way we could, we could talk about this collection would be like the kids are not all right. Um, <laughs> and it's just, uh, you know, these filmmakers were given some latitude and given some opportunity and, and a funding behind it to make these films that, you know, like you you normally wouldn't see made. It's, it was really interesting to, to see the just the the level like the 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 risk they take as far as just the camp where they put the camera or you know the kind of uh, the way that they're willing to kind of wait and see uh, and let let the let the scenes kind of play out and uh, but yeah uh, a great first film to talk about and uh, definitely indicative for a lot of the other stuff we're going to talk about. I think it's yeah it's important to say the sort of budget idea again which is that like you just don't really see a first-time filmmaker having the latitude that uh gray seems to have mm -hmm. in this movie and i'm sure he would say like it was extremely low budget and we were like rushing to make the day and it was really hard <laughs> but there's you know the, i would say that the next film that we're going to talk about 1995's kicking and screaming i'm going to prague so how will that work if you're living with me in brooklyn well it'll be the same except i'll be in prague it's time to turn to your friends for support. How about worst-case scenarios after graduation? Jane dumps me to move to Prague. I spend the rest of my life with you idiots. How long can you avoid commitment? Huh. Want to get married? Yes. Yes, I do. I didn't want to have any attachments. Yeah. Me too. Hi. Compromise. Whatever you want. What, what do you want to do? I don't care. What do you want to do? Before Alan, right after your mother, I went to bed with a woman. She was dead. I'm not really ready to accept you as a human being yet. Honesty. Can we uh, just admit some lies that we may have told each other? I didn't say a word. I thought he knew. So express yourself. Boy, I can't stand you. I can't stand that. Is that a pajama top? By Noah Baumbach is sort of much more indicative of what a first-time filmmaker usually can do these days, yep. which is a, a, a group of people the director's age sitting around talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hey, we can talk. That's easy. Yeah. <laughs> That's way cheaper to talk than blow stuff up. Yeah. Whereas little Odessa, uh, there's there's guns, there's violence, and then there's also at the same time, you know, shots and moments that take mm -hmm. time and choreography that takes a lot of time to set up, as Absolutely. well as as well as locations and lighting. You yeah, need I mean, money to be able to do those things. Right. And and, and you know, for kicking and screaming, uh, you know, it, it does feel, it's very comfortable, you know, or, uh, you know, it's so many of like, you know, the movies that, um, 
you know, inspirations to Noah as far as, uh, you know, his, both of his, his parents were film critics, you know, growing up, uh, both intellectuals. And so, you know, I'm sure he was around so much film growing up and it just, you can really, you know, see that in the way he makes these, this film, um, in the conversations that are ha- happening. It's kind of the essential write what you know movie for recent uh, undergrad <laughs> graduate. <laughs> yeah, like what am I going to do now? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to I'm going to write a movie about me and my friends who don't want to leave co- like the college life and want to hang out and yeah. get drunk. I think the difference is is that on the face of it in the same way with Little Odessa, uh, if if you're not paying attention to the nuances, it could feel like something that you've seen, mm-hmm. but if you're paying attention to the nuances, they're actually much more sensitive and calibrated mm-hmm. than uh, other crime movies or other, um, you know, post-grad, uh, post-graduate malaise com- comedies. Um, I've always loved the scene in Kicking and Screaming where he's a he's about to sleep with a, 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 a woman who's still in college uh-huh. and um, she's sitting in her dorm room and a bunch of first years are sitting around singing Bob Marley. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I remember moments like that Absolutely. Uh, from, from my time in college, never as a graduate who went back and hung out there in college. I never no, did never. that. Never, Never that went guy, back. The old guy in the club. Absolutely not. You were you're not going to catch twenty three year old me in the dorms. Yeah, going to penny pitchers nights. Yeah. <laughs> um, and up up next in this uh, is uh, 1996's Hard Eight, directed by Paul Thomas mm. Anderson. If I were to give you fifty dollars, what would you do with it? I'd eat. How long can you eat? How long can you live on fifty dollars? I don't know. I would bet not very long. It's just so good. Ugh. Oh, it's 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 so good. Um it stars Philip Baker Hall, John C. Riley, Gwyneth Paltrow, Samuel L. Jackson. Um, the the story behind this movie is that uh, it was his first movie. He didn't get along with the distributors uh, or the, the investors. The investors mm-hmm. took the mon- took the money away the the movie away from him and re-edited it. And then he apparently borrowed money or something like that from Gwyneth Paltrow or somebody else <laughs> in the movie and got his negatives back and recut it and sent it to Cannes on his own. And once Can accepted the movie, the investors gave him the movie back, but still forced him to change the title from Sydney, the main character's name, to uh, Hard Eight, a much more, I guess, right. you know, uh, video shelf friendly <laughs> uh, title at the time. I've always loved this movie, and I think it uh, is filled with what you come to see in all of Paul Thomas Anderson's movies, which is. Um, you feel like you're you it's it's set up like you're watching a drama but there's so much humor and love mm-hmm. uh underneath the and john c Riley is so funny in this movie um just the little moments in the beginning when when philip baker hall is offering to give him a ride and john c Riley says to him you know don't mess with me pal i know five types of karate <laughs> it's uh, it's almost like a, a a big audition for boogie nights you know, yeah. because like most of the people in the, like you'll see so many uh, characters, you know, from Boogie Nights in this when you watch this, you know, either the pit boss or, you know, even, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman or um, 
Philip Seymour Hoffman? Is that who? Yeah, Philip Seymour Hoffman. The he's, table. The, he, he's at yeah. the craps table and he keeps yelling uh, yeah. at Philip Baker Hall. Oh, you big time! Yeah, yeah. No, so it's just oh, it's such a good movie. It's so fun to watch. Um, you know, it it is. Uh, you know, I, I love watching movies that are based in casinos or, or prisons or anything like that. So, so this was a, a fun one for me. Uh, like based based in casinos or prisons, like the two, <laughs> <laughs> they're the the two are equal to you. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's a great backdrop. It's just there's you know a containment to it. It's like you have to do it within a certain thing. But uh, but yeah, you know, this was made one year before Boogie Nights. It definitely has like the same frenetic energy. The the performances, obviously, Philip uh, Baker Hall is just you know steals a show pretty much every time he's on screen. Um, but yeah, even, you know, seeing Sam Jackson, uh, you know, this was, this was a, a role after Pulp Fiction for him. So it was interesting to see, you know, the, the take on that role, uh, looking through that lens, too. Yeah, and it's amazing that he did this. Yeah. Uh, I Like, I maybe maybe he hadn't blown up from Pulp Fiction just yet, or maybe he signed on to it before Pulp Fiction had come out. I don't know. But it seems crazy that he would be have this part in a first-time film. But I think it goes again... So what we were saying before that there was just a little more leeway with first-time filmmakers in the '90s. You could just get a little bit more money to 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 get actors of of that stature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, even Gwyneth. I, think... I mean, it's they were all pretty. I guess they were all on, all kind of coming up together, right? I guess none of them were yeah. super breakout stars yet. But I think he still had like I think he had like five million to make it, yeah, which right. is you know insane for and that's you know uh that's without inflation so like you know he probably had like yeah 10 or 15 to make the movie in today's standards and that's nearly impossible for a first-time filmmaker to get for uh for a movie yeah no it's it was worth it um and like you said it takes place in casinos and uh uh you know maybe i'll edit this out but we didn't really say what the movie's about and the the movie is about a uh uh, an old time uh, gambler who takes a, a a young down on his luck John C. Riley under his wings, and uh, and then it involves a cocktail waitress and like another hanger on in the casino and you mm-hmm. know, like uh, like they say in, Ma- in Anderson's Magnolia, you may be through with the past, but the past isn't through with you, and that mm-hmm. kind of comes through. And like all of Anderson's films for the next few years, it's about surrogate families. Um, you know, from Boogie Nights to Magnolia mm-hmm. to There Will Be Blood, uh, a, to The Master. There's uh, so many of his films are about surrogate families, and I think you can really see that start here, especially the father figure and what the father means. Yeah, and um, it's it's such a a well realized film too. I mean, just you know, you're you're kind of you know, it's kind of an, a surprise ending, but also you're like you know, you see it coming, but you, you know, for me, I like try to not see it coming and, mm-hmm. you know, for the, it's just such a well-told story and, you know, the way he's able to, you know, weave these stories together and, uh, you know, he, he's, he's one of the, one of the best. Yeah. He's one of the best, right? Like, and you, it's like a weird, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, he's Paul Thomas Anderson. He's one of the best. <laughs> like what, in a certain way, it's like, what can you say? Because you watch, that movie and it's his first movie and he's like 25 while he's making it. And it is so clean and well told, right? There's never, there's no, there's no questions or scenes that don't work. You get everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could argue like, what was she doing with the guy in the bar after, after, after the, the, the wedding. But at the same time, it's like, it still somehow works because the movie's going so fast. And that, 
chamber piece scene in the hotel room with the four of them is incredible yeah. where they're they're trying to figure out what to do i'm 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 sort of being coy here and trying yeah to no people spoilers. people should watch it it's, it's yeah, yeah it's, i don't want to spoil it either it's uh it's one of those films if you haven't seen it you know it's a it's a joy joy to watch um jumping into our last film from uh the 90s section of beginner's luck is uh <laughs> uh vincent gallo's buffalo 66 listen to me sit down we're taking pictures for my parents do you understand that mm -hmm. we're taking pictures like we're a couple like we like each other like we're we're husband and wife and we span time together we span time together as a couple because we're a loving couple spanning time these photos are us in love spanning time no bullshit faces no f what are you doing what are you doing what don't touch me all right, don't touch me. What do you me. mean, don't touch don't me? You're supposed to be me. husband and wife. I'm just trying to make We're the couple good. that doesn't touch one another. We like each other. We like each other a lot. And we span time together. We just don't touch each other. All right? Uh, uh, Vincent Gallo, uh, a visual artist, a musician, a uh, lightning rod for controversy at a time in his life yeah. when people cared I mean, a he, lot. He was, in a band of, he was in a band with Basquiat. That's right. He was in a, like a noise band with Basquiat. Um, he started in Claire Denae films. Yeah, he, and now he's he's a, he's a straight he up Trump in, supporter now. He's a straight up Trump supporter <laughs> and a real and a and a and a house flipper. A house flipper, uh, good. Yeah, a house good. flipper. Yeah, he's he's in he's involved in real estate and flips houses. That's he how also he makes sells these day. really terrible T-shirts. Yeah, for six hundred dollars. Uh, he's he's kind of always been and is even more so now a professional troll. Sure. Um, but Buffalo 66 is his first foray into filmmaking. He really only made, he made three films, but uh, only two were released, this and Brown mm -hmm. Bunny. He made a yeah. third one uh, that he just decided he didn't want to release. I don't, I don't know what that was about. And Brown <laughs> Bunny was extremely controversial for the um, Chloe Sevigny uh, blowjob scene at the end. And also I think for the aesthetic of the film, I've always thought Buffalo 66 was a beautiful and haunting film. It's about a, man who gets out of prison and goes home to visit his mm -hmm. family with his wife. And his wife is Christina Ricci, who's not actually his wife, but a, right. a woman that he's, he's, he's kidnapped. <laughs> and uh, it's kind it's, it's a dark comedy, but at the same time, it's really pathological and, and mean spirited at times yet still finds a sense of beauty. Mm. And um, the cinematography, if I remember correctly, it was somehow they were able to find because the movie is about, uh, in some ways about this football game that took place but with the Buffalo Bills in 1966. Mm. And they found um, uh, film negative to shoot on that is like what football games were shot on in, in the 60s. Or like they were trying to model it after that or something. So they had to find a specific negative. And it has that extreme grain um, and, and like sort of like white teal color palette, very wintry. Uh, ben Gazar and Angelica Houston plays parents. Mickey mm -hmm. Rourke plays the um, famed uh, Buffalo kicker that uh, uh, Gallo has it out for. And um, for those who didn't know Gallo for his noise music or his paintings, <laughs> it really introduced him to a group of uh, cinema, independent cinema loving boys in the 90s, myself included. Because mm -hmm. um, it was just so brazen and uh, hilarious at times uh do you remember see the first time you saw this movie yeah absolutely i mean it was uh you know definitely i was 
probably same same age, uh, you know, in college at this point, and just you know, always you know, at the at the video store, just like what do I watch next? And you know, this was you know always a staff pick or something. And so you know, you're you know, that's like the way you kind of get introduced to things back then, or I did at least. Um, and yeah, it was it was edgy. It was it was sardonic. It was you know, it had this you know, he has this crazy you know female gaze thing going on, and uh, it's it's like, oh, wow, like, you like, you know, not that I wanted to make films like this, but it was like, oh, you can make films like this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there you can take chances and, and kind of ride on the edge. And Yeah. And I think that when you say take chances, it, it takes we were talking about the grain, the film stock, but it takes a lot of aesthetic chances. There's um, photo collage that's thrown into yeah. the middle of the movie. There's it's, I wouldn't even call it split screen. I would call it multiple picture and picture that's that, that's cut through and yep. then at the, there's also uh sort of pre-matrix uh <laughs> kind of like <laughs> camera camera spinning around people frozen in in time yeah um, that's a way that you know a lot of these first-time directors you know they probably have a lot of things like in the bank you know a lot of like ideas or um you know they, they just feel like they have a little swagger to them like they have these like you know, these things that they've been ready to unleash, you know, they're like from camera angles to the either music placement or, or getting performances out of their actors. It's, uh, or even being patient and allowing like the scenes to unfold. Um, it's, it's interesting how these first time directors, um, you know, flex those muscles. So the next, uh, the next section, uh, it's not the nineties. It's, uh, the early to early to mid aughts uh which there's a number of those that come come after that as well in a different section but for some reason i have phrased this section um bleak but essential filmmaking yes. <laughs> um and the first one of these i'm so happy to talk about because it was such a uh an incredible discovery for me i've been meaning to watch this guy's movies since leviathan and i was so mm -hmm. happy to start with his first and that's the return Ты мне губу разбил, придурок! From 2003 by Russian director Andrei, uh, I'm going to say it wrong and I'm so sorry, Zvenetskev. Okay. Uh, Andre Vizivyanitskev. And, and just, uh, he came out of his coma and he's doing he, okay. Yes, he was in, and that's why I felt so also so bad saying his name wrong. He just came out of a uh, uh, an induced uh, coma due to a bad case of COVID and apparently he's recuperating and, and, and that's great because he's about to make, yeah. or he was about to make his first um, American feature. Mm, interesting. Yeah, uh, so this is a film uh, about two brothers who uh, are... Uh, probably about like eight and 12 or 13 years old yeah. and their father returns home after being away for 12 years and uh, he takes them on a brief holiday and they are consistently questioning who he is what he wants with them and just his presence is really uh bringing out a lot of paranoia and and hostility in them rightfully because mm -hmm. he's kind of a hard man um, yeah he's trying to make up for for these 12 years and like one road trip yeah, and he's also, and in doing that, he's not just making it up by like being sweet to them. He's trying to be a father, a tough, mm -hmm. stern father figure at the same Teach time. Lessons. Yeah, and he can also get a little physical at times. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it's a, it's a, uh, 
but yeah, it, it's a it's a strong it's a strong first feature by any means. You know, just the the, the way that he's get able to get these performances out of these actors and and the young actors especially. Um, and I would I I think it's also just uh, you know I it, I just watched the film this morning, so honestly, it's hard to pick apart exactly why, but it's just a very well told story in the same mm-hmm. way that we're talking about Hard Eight, where it's just sort of like scene by scene you're just thinking oh this person knows how to tell a story mm-hmm. this person knows how to be very clear very concise there and 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 tell the the exact story that that they want to tell and uh that that's how i felt about this movie and there's an added layer of tragedy to this movie which i just found out which is i saw um, that i read that yeah too. one of one of the young boys who the who plays the oldest boy vladimir garen uh, passed away two months before the movie premiered. He mm-hmm. drowned after jumping yeah. from the sort of the tower that the beginning of the movie takes place at. Like he and some friends were at the actual place where the, at the beginning of the movie, some boys are playing and jumping off of a tower into the water. He was there to, he jumped off and he drowned just before the movie premiered mm-hmm. to like worldwide success. It won the, the golden lion yeah. at uh, the Venice film festival. Um, Anyway, this is a, a a beautiful film, and I I can't wait to watch the rest of his movies uh, to to dive into them. Yeah, same. I'm, uh, you know, like you were saying, it's just he's a great storyteller. He knows where to put the cameras. He knows how to get the performances out of his actors. I mean, he he know he he definitely went into this knowing what he wanted, and you can tell he he succeeded. And I love how he's so able. This is another moment where I'm going to have to be coy while while saying this. But there's this element of like where your que- like your allegiance is on one side, and then all of a sudden it it kind of shifts. And just as it shifts, it hasn't shifted for the characters in the movie enough yet, and you can start to tell that like something is brewing because you feel differently about people in the movie than the mm-hmm. characters. Ha- they haven't they haven't they haven't gotten there yet and it's it's a really beautiful transition that he makes and really really smart and well done um the second film in our bleak but essential filmmaking uh category is steve mcqueen's debut which is 2008's hunger are you all right bobby i'm grand Mark. are they feeding you all right I'm starting a hunger strike on the 1st of March. You're going head-to-head with a British government who are unshakable. Starring uh, Michael Fassbender as Bobby Sands, a uh, an, IRA, an IRA member who led the second IRA hunger strike as well as participated in the no-wash protest, protest. Uh, in which um, Irish Republican prisoners tried to regain political status after it had been revoked by the British government in 1976. It's also very much about the Mays prison in which a lot of IRA IRA members were uh, locked in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a film about resistance, about protest, uh, about what it means uh, to have a, a national uh, identity and about oppression. And it establishes, uh, I think, Steve McQueen's eye and style very early like right away it's so audacious and 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 uh i think confident in 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 what it is uh i love this film the first time i saw it was in theaters when it came out and i felt like i was watching an immediate like an immediate master like oh this guy is going to be incredible and everything he does will be amazing and 
by and large so far has has been the case yeah it's definitely um you know i i, I said before i love movies set in prison i mean i That's this right. one you did. You did. <laughs> this one this one isn't you know as fun as some of those other films. If, if, you're a, if you're are, a bigger fan of like a Avengement, like an Alcatraz, or you know, even yeah. like a The Rock, or you know, wherever you want to go. Uh, but you know, there's just so little content. You know, there, there, I was reading uh, somebody was writing about it, and they said there's no, there's very little context because in the inside prison has no context. There's just horror, and maybe sometimes in the least expected places, beauty, and you know it says a lot to, I mean, he made a lot of short films before this, you know, Steve McQueen, um, you know, so he definitely, you know, cut his teeth on, you know, he, he had, it, it wasn't his, you know, just first feature coming out of the bat, but, you know, he had some, you know, time behind a camera and learning how to, you know, make films, um, you know, be, even shorts, you, you learn a lot. And so you could tell he was, he came into this with, with, some, with a point of view and, and some, some chops, you know, like he knew what he was doing. Um, and it's obviously, I mean, I don't know, you know, as your first feature, how do you get, you know, a fast spender to, to go on that diet? Like, it's like how, how do you, how do you like, oh, this is like, yeah, for like, a, you know, a established director, you're like, okay, I'll, I'll do this to my body because what's going to come out is it's amazing. But, you know, he must have seen something or, or felt something or there was, you know, I guess the Irish film board didn't, you know, they wouldn't um fund this movie so they had to go to like northern northern ireland and other places to get the money in wales um but you know the fact that this movie was made as a for a first-time filmmaker it's it's pretty amazing yeah and, and fast this kind of introduced the world to fassbender at the time as well he hadn't uh, really been um yeah fish tank was 2009 so okay so this was for my money this is kind of like his his, his introduction uh on the global stage uh as an actor um yeah I, I this is a movie that i say i love but i don't think i've seen it more than once or twice <laughs> no it was a hard, a I, it wasn't one i was i was ready to i was like oh i can't wait to rewatch this one <laughs> you know, so, yeah and I, and I did and I, i'm glad i did i i mean it's it's a powerful film and you know there's a lot of in the you know there's just a lot of scenes where there's not a lot of talking and it's just you know experiencing as they're experiencing it which is you know in solitude and uh terror <laughs> it's just uh yeah it's a it's a tough one i you know fassbender did play a warrior in 300 that oh he his, did he played a young spartan warrior in 300 okay Zach, Zach snyder uh thing and uh and yeah so this was his second film <laughs> so, so i don't he know was, if he so, really stood out in 300. so that makes sense then that he's done all the other all the x-men and assassin's creed because he started on a green screen whereas yeah, everybody yeah. thought he started with hunger and they were like why did what what was this jump to the, it's like no 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 he started with uh with the green screens there you go um our next section uh it's it's also a mid-aughts section uh and this is um i call this section wearing your influ influences on your sleeve which um, you know, lots of first-time filmmakers do, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. You have to learn from what you love, and I would honestly say, Hard Eight um, doesn't do that. Whereas Boogie Nights very much wears its influences on its uh -huh. on its sleeve, uh -huh. um, and it's kind of all the better for it. You know, just own it. Uh, and the first one that we're talking about is After School. A lot of announcements to make this morning, and pay attention, there might be a little note in here that could change your lives. How much coke did you do with them? Not too much, just a couple bumps. 
don't think anyone likes me here, Mom. Oh, stop. I just get this sense from people. Rob, what's going on back there? Rob wants to use the video to make a porn. <laughs> Uh, from 2008, directed by Antonio Campos, who went on to direct uh, Christine um, and Simon Killer. Um, the Devil All the Time. The Devil All the Time. Thank you. Uh, and this is uh, Ezra Miller's first movie, mm-hmm. who goes on to be The Flash. DC's The Flash. And uh, and I think it's in the Harry the new Harry Potter movies as well. Fantastic yes. Creatures. Uh, and it's about a disturbed prep school kid um, who ends up videotaping the deaths of uh, two twin girls from a drug overdose. Uh, and when I say it wears its influences on his sleeve, it very much to me feels like a Michael Haneke influenced uh, film, specifically Benny's video and its dissection of uh, uh, adolescence and desensitization towards violence and death mm-hmm. due to um, uh, different the ability to watch anything on screen at any time and kind of live through screens. And um, they're definitely playing in, in that, that sandbox here with uh, talking about desensitization and, and, uh, and yeah. teenagers and screens and, and, and YouTube. Yeah. Another one, you know, and the kids are not all right uh, section yeah. for me, uh, but it's, you know, he was 24 when he made this, um, which is, you know, I didn't do anything that good at any, I haven't done anything that good ever, but uh, I'm just saying it's like, no, this I was, is... I was mostly drunk at 24. <laughs> right. And you know, the way he, you know, as far as like, you know, first time filmmaker or feature filmmaker, at least, and the way that they're, you know, the mixed media that they're using throughout the film, um, uh, just the way they're, they're dealing with the, you know, the camera and, and what it means to be in front of it or behind it. And, uh, you know, obviously the, the whole, you know, the beginning of YouTube and, and social media and, um, you know, kids filming things on their cameras. And uh, it, it is a really, you know, interesting slice of life kind of, you know, in the, at this prep school and, you know, how things, you know, it's just this little microcosm in, in, inside the prep school and how, you know, obviously the, you know, the the Dean and everybody's trying to like, you know, shelter them, but it's like, you can't shelter. These kids aren't, they're unshelterable. You know, you, it's all out there now. You can't stop it. And, you know, maybe you can drug test them and do whatever, but it's like, um, it's a kind of, uh, pointless, but, but the film itself is just really, you know, it captures that moment and in that, uh, you know, time. And, you know, again, he lets the, the, the young actors kind of, you know, find themselves and it's not super it, it doesn't feel like it, there's a lot of um heavy-handed direction right it's sort of trying to play with objective camera work and staying a little bit further away and forcing the audience to mm-hmm. have to sort of lean in and look at what you're and and find what you're supposed to focus on in this world right yeah um i, lo- I I'm, I'm a fan of antonio campos i like this movie and then you know his follow-up film simon killer i liked and i thought christine sure uh, was a uh, I thought Christine was a bona fide masterpiece, and I I think uh, I've been a, I've been I felt very alone in that opinion, but I I thought that I thought that movie was great. No, that movie is great. Um, the next one on our list is uh, 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 Quebec's Infant Terrible, <laughs> Xavier <laughs> Dolan, his first film. Talk about being young. I believe he made this when he was seventeen, eighteen. Yeah. 
Wow. Uh, this is I Killed My Mother. Qu'est-ce que je pourrais prendre le métier de ma tante? Tu peux pas prendre le métier d'un de tes parents? Je vois jamais mon père. Et ma mère est morte. Which is uh, essentially about a teenager who has escalating conflicts with his single mother. And I would also say it's about a teenage Xavier Dolan who watched a few Pedro Almodovar films. Uh, and I actually love it for that reason. I love watching uh, an extremely confident teenager make a art house an art house film and what's so much more fun about it is it kind of reminds me of like this old eddie murphy bit where he talks about if he wrote stand-up about what he knew when he was a teenager and it would be about like i think he says it would be about like going to the bathroom because that's all he knew and there's something about i killed my mother where it has these like extremely heavy weighty aesthetic ideas but that are inside of like a teenager fighting with his mother about how she eats her bagel or like wanting to smash the dishes and this very clear teen angst that, you know, 10, 15 years later, you could, you could tell that kid, Hey, you know, you're going to get over this stuff. It's not a big deal, but it's very funny to watch a young person play with those weighty aesthetics inside what is potentially like a, a kind sort of trivial fights with, with a mother. I had such yeah. a fun time watching this movie. Yeah, I I did. I mean, for me, it was, I mean, I, I was raised by a single mother. And I guess part of me looks back at this and I'm like, obviously, I was not terrible like this child was to his mother or, you know, th their relationship is complicated, obviously. But, you know, looking back at it, it's like, oh, I like I, I also had a lot of empathy for her, you know, oh, too, yeah. because it's like, yeah. You know, I mean, my. I mean, perfect. I think as an I think as an adult, most of my empathy resides with her. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. And it's like, oh, kid, you're gonna be okay. You know? yeah. <laughs> but it's like, you know, but just like just like the you know throwing the dishes on the floor. It's like, how much money is that gonna cost? Like she's like single mom, you know. Just so I I go in these like you know more. Uh, that that's what I see now when I watch it. Based on maybe I look at it a lot different when I was younger. Um, but I, I think I guess that's what I like about it, though, is that I like that it's so juvenile, mm -hmm. but juxtaposed with such a um, an art house aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's purely juvenile. His behavior, the fact that he kind of sides with himself in the movie and not really <laughs> with her. But it's 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 employing all these aesthetics that you would see uh, on the Cannes film circuit. You know? Yeah, I mean, obviously, and, he got into Fortnite with it. And, uh, yeah. you know every other film pretty much got in a, got in a can. So he's obviously doing something right. <laughs> um, our next film is the debut film from uh, former, I would say former actor at this point, Brady Corbett, because he doesn't really uh, act in movies anymore. He's worked mm -hmm. with a previous director. We talked about Antonio Campos um, yep. and it's from 2015 and it's called the childhood of a leader. He's been acting out of it. Hey! It's only a little boy. He didn't actually hurt anyone, did he? I'm sorry, Mama. Why would you want to hurt anyone? Do you like it here? Why don't you lead us in a prayer, my love? No. Hold your hand up. Tu étais en colère contre quelqu'un? Wouldn't you like to make some friends? It's uh, basically a few days in the life of a, a petulant child as his 
father works out the Treaty of Versailles, and uh, uh, eventually the child is going to grow up to become a uh, a fascist military leader. But that's really not that's that's more of a punchline, and I don't right. think I'm ruining anything because that's in the description of the movie. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, you're almost supposed to go into it knowing that that's what he's going to become. Right. Uh, and the idea is watching how that personality or what that personality was uh, beforehand. And in terms of uh, wearing the influences on your sleeves, I know Brady has been in a Von Trier film, but this he very much feels to me like someone influenced by Von Trier, Lars Von Trier, as well as Michael Haneke. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's, very much wearing those cerebral aesthetics uh, on the, on the sleeve of the, of the film, which I enjoy watching because I enjoy watching those filmmakers. Agreed. No, I mean, the, the film itself is it's, it feels so, I mean, maybe because they're in this, you know, very large house and, you know, it feels big. It feels like a big thing. Um, and, you know, the, the performance he gets out of that young actor is, is really something. And it's uh yeah, no, I mean it's 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 not it, it doesn't feel like it's about much, you know. It doesn't feel like there's a lot going on, but obviously there's a lot going on in the, you know, in inside this kid. And mm. um yeah, it's almost like uh you know, you almost like uh if you don't watch it, if you don't if you if you ignore it, if you ignore, ignore the warnings, it could be the our peril, you know. If you ignore the warnings, they could become a fascist dictator. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's yeah. like, oh, he's just throwing throw, throw a fit. He's like, no, he could be fascist. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's just throwing rocks at other kids. No, he could be a fascist. Yeah. Yeah, if given if given permission or the leeway or the opportunity, he could he could become a fascist. Yeah. Um, up next in this, I've I've uh, I've listed as as mumblecore, which was a huge <laughs> a, 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 a huge period of time in the in the two thousands, and I got to say, both these films um made me kind of mi- miss the the very much maligned and mocked uh mumblecore subgenre uh of movies which i probably participated in in their mockery as well uh it was but, a thing it was a thing to do yeah but i mean it's it, it god remember when there was a market for like extremely low budget films and and filmmakers to just like make movies with their friends i've um, seen magnolia yeah and it's just <laughs> doesn't it just it doesn't feel like it really exists anymore uh but first up is um uh probably one of the most celebrated filmmakers working right now mm-hmm. and that's barry jenkins and his debut film medicine for melancholy this is a little embarrassing but i i kind of forgot your name i don't know if we ever got there yeah i know we didn't we were pretty drunk I'm I'm Micah. Angela. Nice to meet you, Angela. It seems like the city just pisses you off. Nah, I love this city. I hate the city, but I love the city. San Francisco's beautiful. You shouldn't have to be upper middle class to be a part of that. From 2008, it's um, a day in the life of a, a brief relationship following a one-night stand uh, between two African-American people uh, in a white city, San Francisco, and it's uh, within this one day somehow able to 
discuss and dissect class mm-hmm. connection race um and it's a, a beautiful film and right away on a fifteen thousand dollar budget you can see uh why barry jenkins years later was able to 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 make what he made his close-ups are beautiful mm-hmm. he in, instead of just you know shooting a scene from like a, a a boring position which many mumblecore movies unfortunately fell prey to um i still would argue that i missed that uh he <laughs> finds a way to to create sequences beautiful sequences and cuts and 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 shots that stand apart from uh, the rest of the pack uh and it's a it's it's a beautiful a beautiful film and it was made for fifteen thousand dollars i don't know how many times i have to say that that's yeah. insane no and especially in san francisco you know, $15,000 doesn't get you very far. Um, you know, the, <laughs> this film had a, you know, obviously we, you know, as uh, we premiered it at South by Southwest, uh, it was a big deal for us. And, you know, we, we had known Barry, um, but not like, you know, Barry worked for Telluride and he went to, you know, the uh, Florida State with uh, Adela and all these other folks. And, you know, he was, you know, it wasn't like he came out of nowhere, but it was like he was waiting, you know, he was getting it right. He wasn't going to do it before he was ready. I mean, the same reason it took him eight years to make Moonlight after this is like he didn't, he didn't, you know, take anything for granted. He did, you know, he, it only probably cost him $15,000 because he planned so well and he knew what he was doing way before he did it. I mean, he's a lover of cinema. He's a, he's, you know, he knows, he watches as many movies as anyone I know. And, you know, he just made, you know, the music choices are great. The, you know, the chemistry between the two, you know, actors, just these little moments, you know, and even it's like, you know, at the, at the, you know, in the apartment or the coffee shop or just walking around, and, you know, it's, it's like a modern love story. That's not really a love story as far as what mumblecore is. And, and, you know, th- this is definitely a highlight of the, of the genre, <laughs> um, you know, and, you know, one fact is like, he is one of the few African-American independent filmmakers um, out there. And so it was, it was all, all obviously nice to see, you know, this mumblecore in, in a different light, you know, yeah. you're used to seeing just these, you know, white kids, you know, talking about their problems. It's like, okay, no, these are actually, and my, and my wife, you know, grew up in San Francisco and I, I was able to spend time in the city. And so it, it, I definitely connected this film in a different way. You know, my, my father-in-law owned a cab company before it was, you know, ridden out of town by Uber and Lyft. And, you know, they live in Lower Haight. And so there's a lot of connections to me personally with this film. And, um, you know, so, you know, I, I don't know how skewed my vision of it is, but it's a, it's a really personal film for me. And, you know, I just, it still holds up after all these years. Well, there's a sense of because this is coming out of the 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 mumblecore period of movies, this almost feels, I think, and I I could be very much wrong for for saying this, but because it's about uh, uh, black characters, it almost feels like a response to the the sort of whiteness of the of of all of the mumblecore movies mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. And whether or not that's the case uh, on Barry's part, I'm not sure. I mean, Barry just happens to be black and probably wanted to tell the story of. Uh, uh, tell a story of black characters but mm-hmm. because of i remember that period of time and everything feeling everything being extremely white uh yeah. at that time in the Absolutely. independent film scene and this feels like not just a response in terms of presenting these the the these marginalized uh people uh but also a response in being like this is how you do it this is actually how you make a movie for this much money and what you can do 
right? Yeah. Because at, at no point does a shot feel wasted. And even when they're sitting in an apartment, it's not like the camera's just whipping back and forth and they're trying to get the scene done. It's very, it's, it's, the script is very well calibrated and it's very succinct and people aren't just kind of, as much as you want to say mumblecore, like they're actually not mumbling through their lines in this movie. They have real lines and real conversations that, right. that are important important to the film mumblecore the 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 phrase was born out of like having to decipher what the movie was about in between mumbles <laughs> <laughs> um our next movie is a uh, myth of the american sleepover from 2010 directed by david robert mitchell who went on to do it follows as well as under the silver lake and it's about a a group of teenagers navigating love lust and friendship in a in a michigan town and we're extremely fortunate to have a guest to talk about this movie as well as working with a number of other first-time filmmakers uh we have producer oscar-winning producer adela romanski so let's let's uh, go over to our conversation with her i just feel like i should have done more this summer you did a lot i mean fun stuff like i don't know You ever think about a person so much that you start to believe that they might know that you're thinking about them? When I was a kid, maybe. Okay, so we're extremely happy and lucky uh, to be joined right now by Oscar-winning producer uh, Adela Romanski. Uh, Jared, you're here with me. Adela, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about working with um, first-time filmmakers. Yeah, my pleasure. Man, that intro never gets quite comfortable for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're lucky. I mean, you have the most historical Oscar story. I mean, as of recent memory, you're very, you're very lucky that I can withhold all of my questions about that right now and and, and not go crazy. Yes, of course. (laughs) Um, And we're here for, uh, for different reasons. Uh, We're talking about um, a collection of movies that are on Curia called Beginner's Luck, which are all first-time films, films by filmmakers who kind of, um, you know, hit a home run right out of the gate on their first movies. Uh, one of them being a movie that uh, you produced called The Myth of the American Sleepover. I believe this was maybe, according to your IMDb, maybe the fourth or fifth movie that you produced and two in a row with a first-time filmmaker, Katie Azelton's being just before that with no, the, the freebie. Was, Myth was actually the first film I ever produced. Really? Mm -hmm. I think the dates get a little, the the dates are maybe misleading because of like, um, you know, they're tagged to distribution, I think. But in terms Mm of me as a young producer, you know, in over my head trying to make a feature film, uh, that was myth. That was the first one. Well, I have to say, in terms of producing, myth does seem like a challenge, even for someone who's not producing their first movie. It's a series, it's a, it's an ensemble piece with kids, which and it's all shot at night. So at the very least, talk to us about putting that production together and what it was like shoot having that be your first feature. I don't want to incriminate myself. <laughs> Child labor laws. But there, but there, it was a, it was definitely a certain time, um, in both my own personal, like my age, my experience my evolution, but also a a certain time, I think, in, in cinema um, and in independent films specifically, and and the ways in which, you know, a lot of us were um, making, making or attempting to make films by any means possible. 
Um, you know, I was telling a friend the other day, like I didn't get paid to produce a movie until I think technically the third movie I produced and I got paid like $2,500, you know, so we weren't paying ourselves and, you know, we, in many instances, we're not paying the crew, which obviously is a really controversial statement to be making, but like, that was just a different time, I think. Um, and maybe, maybe there are young, young filmmakers now who are, you know, similarly like fresh out of, of college and taking that kind of an approach to like making their first films. I'm just not connected to it anymore. I don't know. I think it's true, Adela. I mean, it, it was a lot of that, like coming out of film school, you're like, you know, fake it till you make it, just do whatever you have to do. And, you know, like, oh, I don't get paid, but I get to work with these cool people and they'll feed me. And, you know, that, that was kind of enough. And it was like, as soon as one of us breaks, then we'll all, you know, we'll all start getting paid. Uh, but there was definitely that, that ethos of just like, do what you got to do. And it was, and it was all inside of a circle of friends, right? If you think, or at least in my experience, that's what it was. Like, myth I made with David Mitchell, you know, we both went to Florida State, James Laxon, who shot that film went to Florida State, Julio Perez, who edited the film went to Florida State, like you were kind of working inside of um, a sort of established family, as it were. And I think, like you say, you you know, you're kind of, everybody's, it's, it's a, you're investing collectively in your collective futures. So you had worked with uh, David at at Florida State prior, which, I mean, one could argue that was really when he was a first-time filmmaker, maybe making shorts there. But what was it like for you in that instance, sort of discovering what it's like to shoot a feature-length film with a first-time filmmaker? What did you notice? What did you observe in terms of the challenges that that they come up against? It's it's a really interesting question because, you know, remembering that that was also my first-time filmmaker experience, you know, we were going through that together. And I think, um, I still work with film, you know, first time filmmakers. And I did a movie this summer in Turkey, that's a debut. And we're starting production this week on another debut. So like, I actually have a, I didn't know what I was doing at all. I would say that David and I collectively had, had learned so much on that. Um, and I'm the first to admit, I really had no clue, but there was that sort of that brazen fearlessness of youth, which got me through every day. Um, and and now it's sort of interesting to, to be, you know, a, a decade on observing the first time process and, and being more um, less, I don't want to say less of a partner because that's not the right way to talk about it. Like I still very much feel a partner with my filmmakers, but there's also just a there's a database, there's an archive that I can pull from now and say like, mm-hmm. you know, on the, on the scale of what's normal, we're right where we should be. Don't worry. You know, and I had no idea back then what was normal or what was okay or what was acceptable. Like it was just, we were just in survival mode. Right. When a location fell through mm-hmm. on myth of, uh, on myth of the American sleepover, it was chaos. And, and I'm assuming you were all kind of scrambling, but when a location falls through now, it's like, don't worry, this happens. We'll find somewhere else. It's okay. It's a, it's a different kind of scramble, you know, like when a location falls through now on, yeah. you know, the underground railroad, I get on an airplane with my location manager and I fly to Miami and I, with her show up at the office of the, of the landowner and beg, 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 beg. <laughs> and they still tell us, no, you can't use my land. And we're like, all right. So we're right back where we started having lost the location, but at least like you can put a different kind of energy and resources towards the attempt to salvage it, I suppose. But 
Um, you said that you still uh, feel like you're partnering with your filmmakers, but there is a, a larger database that you can that you can pull from. Uh, you know, one of the cliches about filmmaking that people use all the time is that it always feels like the first time, no matter how much experience you've had. And I'm wondering if that um, phrase has any truth for you. There are inevitably components to each filmmaking experience that are unique unto that film and are going to be, and they're going to be the first time, like just as a point of fact, you know, um, but I'm very grateful for the depth of knowledge and experience that I carry with me into each project now. And I wouldn't say that, that, I mean, that kind of su supports me from not maybe having each one feel like the first time. I mean, that first time was so scary. I just remember like waking up every day and just looking at the, the long list of things that were still outstanding. <laughs> and, you know, we were a very small crew. I was the um, producer, but I was also de facto like first AD on the schedule and accountant and line producer and lawyer. Um, I used to, I was telling this story the other day, like I, I did the legal on my first few films because we couldn't afford a lawyer. And so I would negotiate the deals to a close and then it would get to the point where the, the representatives were looking for the um, drafts of the agreements. And I would just call them and be like, look, I know you want our side to do it because it takes bandwidth on your side. And it's obviously like, you know, money to your firm to have somebody draft this versus having our side do it. But like, I don't have anybody. So I can draft it, but you're gonna hate what that comes across <laughs> looking like. And I think it's better if, if you guys just kick it off so that I can mark it up. Like that's the world I was living in circa 2010, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I would just, you know, you'd have this long list of stuff and, and, and all of it seemed to varying degrees impossible. Um, but you know, little by little you would just like attack it. Um, and then in some instances, just like pray. I love that story, Adela, because it is very much a producing is not always glamorous <laughs> story. <laughs> Drafting legal documents. I, know, I haven't thought about that in years, but it just kind of came up in context of something else the other day. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember I had to. That's how I used to do that. You know, you said that you're you're still working with with first time filmmakers. Um, I'm wondering what you've learned over the years are some reoccurring pitfalls or expectations that first time filmmakers have going into their first movies. Um, I think I probably have a thousand answers here. I'm just going to start grabbing as they come. But like, um, I think with the first film, that's the one you always have the most time to think about. It's the thing you've been building towards and it might have taken, you know, any any multitude of years to get to the point where you get to actually make it. So you've had all this time perfecting the vision of what it is in your mind and you just want to stay faithful to that in the execution. And very quickly, um, it starts to like lose its perfectness. And I think that's a, I think, and I think you, you as, as the first time feature director are just fighting to, to hold on to that perfect thing that you've imagined for years. And I think the process of going through, um, you know, from, from every step, you know, fi financing through exhibition, like the process of just going through and sort of understanding it, it's a really flawed process. 
and there's something beautiful in the outcome of, a, of the, of the flaws too, I think. Um, but I feel like that's a hard, that's a hard thing to accept, nor should you, you would you really shouldn't like show up on day one of prep and say, okay, how can we compromise? You know, where can we make some mistakes? Where can I concede some stuff? I never in a thousand years thought I would give up. Like that's not the right attitude to come in, come into it with, but at the same time, like it really, it's, it's really hard to watch somebody who you believe in and you care about and you're supporting and you're trying to craft this really safe, perfect space for them to work in, um, have to sort of experience that specific growing pain of a first movie. Right. And it seems like the, the, the tragic pitfall could be the person who can't experience that growing pain and can't compromise because they were, they're so dedicated to this initial vision that they had versus the other filmmaker that's not tragic at all. It's like, oh, it's raining today. You know what? We could do something beautiful with rain rather than sunshine. And I have found that most of the folks that I work with are the, are the, the former, like they adapt highly. Yeah. Um, and the fact that so much time has gone into thinking about and preparing for the film, even when it was unofficially preparing, you know, before prep, before any of that, like, I think to re- the thing to remember is that there is now a gut level foundation to be trusted so that when you are in those moments of like, what do I do with this, you know, rainy day where it's supposed to be sun and you have to act and respond very quickly and make decisions on the fly. Like you, you can trust the decisions you're making. I think I've been so, I've been so impressed with some of the folks we've been working with lately. Like, again, just speaking in terms of first, first filmmakers and their ability to just like quickly get in sync, rise to the occasion and like adapt and lead like leadership, you know, really, really like, it's a really cool thing. (laughs) Sometimes I feel like a parent. (laughs) We were talking yesterday about first time filmmakers and, you know, they have a, you know, they're coming into these films uh, with their whole life, you know, behind them and they're like, you know, certain scenes they wanted to get or certain songs they wanted to get or you know certain things and so it's, is it almost like you're that you're like crushing their dreams at a certain point or you know i'm glad to hear that they feel like they you know they adapt but i'm sure that you know but that's kind of the beauty of these first time filmmakers is like they do put it all out there and you can feel like you know like how much you know ideas they have in them and that, that are trying to come out Am I a dream crusher, Jared? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) On some level, yeah. I think to take it back to the beginning of this conversation, I was crushing dreams on myth every day without being able to say it's going to be okay and it's all going to turn out, you know? Whereas like now when I crush dreams, (laughs) I can sort of point to past examples when it was okay. And how it all turned out for the better, I guess. Right. But you and David ended up working together again on Under the Silver Lake. So how do you think you were able to crush those dreams on Myth of the American Sleepover while at the same time maintaining a a healthy, productive, and inspired relationship with with, with director-producer? Well, nobody said I maintained a healthy, inspired relationship. Um, I'm allowed, I mean, just allow the assumption. No, I mean, that was, but that was also part of the learning curve for me too. Just like understanding what's important and how to protect relationships, you know? 
I think at some point I, I understood that the relationships are ultimately more important than the film, mm. or at least you need to let them carry equal weight. So like anything in the name of, of the movie, um, I think can be a disastrous a- approach to filmmaking because you, you come out the other side with like relationship casualties. Um, and, and in the long run, the relationships are what matter most. So I had to kind of figure that out. Um, and, and I think I was starting to say too, like, you know, these, these, um, the types of films that we're talking about right now are so personal that it's hard not to take everything personally, whether you're sitting in the producer seat or the director seat. Um, I, I found that I really struggled with that on myth too. Like, you know, if, when I dream crushed (laughs) and when David was then, you know, rightfully disappointed and having to kind of work through that disappointment, it was hard not to feel that personally. Like he was personally disappointed in me, you know? Um, So that was a, that was a process for sure of kind of coming to understand the, the line between, you know, yourself as a human (laughs) and like the job that you're doing. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering how that has shifted as much as this is a conversation about first time filmmakers. I'm just kind of curious how, how, or if that has shifted as your projects have moved into um, like uh, with a larger canvas, you know, you're still working with these filmmakers that you have close relationships with, but maybe the people behind the movie are a, a larger brand or a studio, for instance, if that changes the dynamic or, uh, or the relationship in any way. I mean, it's always going to be hard to deal with the feeling of letting someone down. Is there anything you miss about the time where you yourself were a first time filmmaker? Mm, nope. the thing that i miss a little bit about that era of my of my professional life if you will i miss film festivals and i don't just miss them because of covid um you know because they're going to come back and i was going to them before covid and i feel like it had already shifted to me you know for me like um the community that i found via traveling from festival to festival with a project and meeting people and seeing the same people again and again and crashing like 13 people to a one bedroom in a, (laughs) in a La Quinta or whatever, like that's a, which may or may not have happened. Um, That's a, that's a special time that I, I don't want to go back to. I don't miss it in the sense that I, I mean, I like, I like being a comfortable person now, sleeping one, one occupant in my like, <laughs> nice hotel room, like bought for me by my distributor. You know, I like that. Um, but I have a nostalgia for that other thing. And uh, thinking about filmmakers kind of missing out on that in the last couple of years is, is a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, because it was pivotal to, mm-hmm. to my, you know, foundation and, and growth what advice would you give to yourself going into making myth of american sleepover now that you have all this years of experience under your belt if you were to talk to you as you were about to step on set in 2009 what would you say flies with honey adela flies with honey 
Do you care to expand? On that? <laughs> just be nicer. Just be nicer. Just calm down and be nicer. You know, don't be so stressed mm-hmm. out. Don't let that stress turn into anger. You know, it's pretty okay with the rest of it. <laughs> I just keep envisioning um, these these huge groups of children, or you know, now that we're older, we can call them children. But yeah. you know, you weren't that much older than them at that point. <laughs> uh, but it's just like that. Just wrangling all of them must have been something it's funny maybe that's why it didn't feel so crazy at the time to like have these kids out you know all night and stuff because yeah they were teenagers but i was also what 24 right you know like wasn't you know they 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 were just ending high school just starting college kind of stuff or in college and i had just left college so Mm -hmm. um but casting that movie was really fun casting is still the most fun um Hmm. I love I love that part and I love that part when it's um well it doesn't matter whether whether it's about going out and discovering people who have a natural talent um or and haven't done it before or you know asking people who you've long admired their work to come and be a part of something like I just really love that part of it. I know that David talked about the fact that you know he didn't want to use or y'all didn't want to use known actors. Um, you didn't want it to be like, you know, remind you of other roles. And I, I love that y'all cast so many unknowns in, in the in the film. And it, it, it always adds something so, so much more to me when, when, you know, you do, you go, you do go out of your way to, you know, work harder on the casting and get the right people, even if they're inexperienced, you know, it just brings something so different to the project. Yeah, cool, man. I, I mean, it was a choice early on. Like you say, we, it was by design. Um, but you know, I don't think it could have been any other way. Like I think back to the one time we sent a package to an agency and it just got returned to sender. <laughs> like this isn't our package. You know, just, we don't take unsolicited material. I think that was probably the first time I'd even ever heard that phrase before. And I was like, Oh, was there a sense, um, around the aesthetic of myth of the American sleepover that it's sort of coming out of the quote unquote mumblecore movement, but there's something a bit more intentional and lyrical about myth. And was there a conversation about how to define, how to define the movie in a different way or make sure it stood out from, from that period of time in those movies, those low budget movies? Um, yeah, my memory of that, cause now we're really reaching back, but like, um, I think, you know, David's, you know, his visuals as a filmmaker are, are like pretty um, thoughtful and mm-hmm. uh, um, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, David put so much thought into the frame. Mm-hmm. It was as true on myth as it would later be on Under the Silver Lake. The difference was we didn't have any tools on myth, you know. So, so he and James they worked with the with the gear that we had to, you know, again to do their very best to kind of reach for what what they had discussed as the as the visual language and aesthetic for the film. Um, but I would say it was incredibly thoughtful, whether or not it feels you know, mumblecore adjacent or, or not, you know? I think just because of that period of time of movies and being low budget and talky, but what separates it is that it is so much more intentional, especially in the frame and tone and in the pacing of the film. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, we just had to um, we just had to wait for the resources to catch up to the to the vision now. Yeah. And still probably um, are to some extent. You know what I mean? We still didn't have everything we wanted and needed on on under the silver lake. Kind of. Do you ever feel like you have everything you need though? Um Yeah, I mean, you referenced the you referenced the location falling through an underground railroad, which is a, a mini series backed by Amazon. So it sounds like even with that kind of backing, you 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 can run into trouble. Well, and it's interesting, right? Because I was talking to our filmmakers who are about to start their movie um, in Mississippi, and there's this, you know, it's like just just in that final runway up to production, it's when everything that's gonna sort of shake loose shakes loose you know and you have like a, a, a last final reckoning just something i would tell you know for first time directors <laughs> that's normal <laughs> that happens um and we we just had to like um basically condense down our our number of shooting locations like how many states are we shooting this movie in we were going to shoot it in two now we're going to shoot it in one um and and that was like a pretty sizable blow um, to, to have to lose, to lose that after many, many months of imagining, imagining it a certain kind of way. And I was like, well, for what it's worth, exact same thing happened to us on the underground railroad. You know, there was a time where we were going to shoot that movie in, in three States, which became two States. Like we went and scouted, we picked locations in another state. And then in the final weeks leading up to production, it became one state. So um money didn't save us from that hmm. and at the same time i'm like i appreciate that i can point to it and say i i know it seems like you're getting the short end right now because of of money and debut film and resources and all that i can't promise you it won't happen again when you have all the money in the world right you got the you guys on underground railroad are coming off of as a crew, Oscar-nominated, Oscar-winning and nominated films, as well as adapting um, a Pulitzer Prize-winning and, for my money, one of the great books of the 21st century, and yet you're still running up against hurdles often. Thank you for saying that. And I and yes, because resources are finite, but our imaginations are infinite. And somewhere, <laughs> and somewhere you have to find the intersection of those two things. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to swim over there? What happens over there? We talk. You trick into giving up your childhood, all these promises of adventure. Once you realize what you lost, it's too late. Can't get it back. We're gonna go to some tunnels. One of the girls heard about. <laughs> it's a makeup maze. Can we go? Where the Abbey twins are? I told you, they're starting school. There's some freshman welcome sleepover. What are you doing here? I saw you and I say hi. And wrapping up our list of uh, beginner's luck films, we have a bit of an outlier here. I didn't really know how to categorize it in our list of movies or in terms of the thematic subgenre ones that I made up here, whether they were chronological or not. And that's 2003's House of Sand and Fog. I miss my dad. He worked really hard for that house. It took him. 30 years to pay it off. The county has petitioned the court to reclaim this property. Now the house is up for auction tomorrow morning. 
auction. Are you out of your mind? I'm afraid you have no choice, Mrs. Lazaro. Today, God has kissed our eyes. Now that I... Do you remember our bungalow on the Caspian? How beautiful it was. I'd have bought for us another bungalow on the west side so that we may view the sea. I guess it could have been in the bleak but essential filmmaking uh, by Vadim Perlman. Uh, and it's the story of a battle over a house between an Iranian family um, led by... Um, ben Kingsley. Ben Kingsley, Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, it's the battle over a, a house uh, between an Iranian family uh, that is uh, the patriarch is played by Ben Kingsley and uh, a, a woman who is a recovering addict that thought the house was hers, played by uh, Jennifer Connelly. Uh, rounding out the cast, you also have Ron Eldard as a um, kind of disheveled and out of his league small town cop, uh, as well as uh, uh, Shora uh, Agdashlu, who plays uh, Ben Kingsley's wife. Uh, and this is based on an Andre Dubois uh, novel from the time. And it was another discovery for me. I hadn't seen this movie. And uh, there's some really incredible performances uh, inside this inside this film, both Ben Kingsley. I think it might be Jenner, Jennifer Connelly's best performance. Others uh, would say Requiem for a Dream, but I actually think she's, she's better in this film. Mm-hmm. But both Kingsley and the woman whose name I totally mangled, uh, who plays his wife? I don't even want to dare try it again. Uh, is are are pretty incredible. Uh, and they were both uh, nominated for Academy Awards for these roles too. That's right. Do you think um, you know they would Kingsley would be nominated now for playing an Iranian man? I have, uh, I have no idea. <laughs> I, have, I have. I'm. Uh, you got me on that one. I, I don't have a clue. Look, what, what I, I'm thoughts? not. I, I'm not one for going back and like, you know, criticizing the past for things that they couldn't see as mistakes at the time. I don't necessarily know if it was make, I think it would be a big to do if he played, um, you know, uh, an Iranian man or Gandhi. (laughs) Yeah, no. Yeah. Things have changed, obviously, you know, the, you know, representation and, and authentic representation when, when there are plenty of Iranian and Indian actors out there who could, you know, the, I mean, when it comes down to it, those are easier than it, than it, you know, than the trickier subject for the, you know, you know, playing LGBTQ uh, characters or, or filmmakers or actors with disabilities. I mean, there's so many people that are left out of these, you know, conversations when it's, you know, like the film probably got made because of Ben Kingsley. And so it's hard to be like, oh, well, we can't have him play, you know, this character. And, you know, when it's like probably a lot of the funding relied on that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it's always best to have, you know, the right people, you know, play the characters that should, they should play. You know, it's that, always better that... whenever they're being represented by people from that, you know, subgroup of people. And that said, though, he is very good in the movie. Yeah, he's Ben Kingsley. <laughs> he is Ben Kingsley. Yeah, he is Ben Kingsley. He has ben a Kingsley's gonna like, Ben Kingsley. Yeah, he, he's gonna, you can't stop him. He's gonna Ben Kingsley it. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but no, it's a really strong film by a first time filmmaker that you're just like, wow, how did, where did this come from? And I, you know, you know, I guess uh, Perlman, you know, he drew a lot, uh, you know, having shaped by his own immigrant experience. Um, so that was definitely something you could, you know, kind of tell. But, you know, you're almost like, you know, like 
he could, you know, based on the people who were in the film um, and the performances that they gave, I mean, you have to give some credit to the director for that, for getting those performances out of them too. You know, and for hiring Roger Deakins to shoot it. Exactly. <laughs> like what, for, how does a first time filmmaker get Roger Deakins to shoot his movie? I'd like to know that. And James Horner did the original score and he got, yeah, what? I mean, Hey, <laughs> there's some money involved here, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> Uh, and you can see that. I mean, that's that. That's kind of what's interesting about this movie for a first for a first time movie. It doesn't feel scrappy, and it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like a first time movie. It feels no. like a uh, I, I hesitate to say like a Hollywood dra- a dramatic Hollywood filmmaker on their third or fourth. You know, I'm just making just making a movie. Yeah, no, just some really solid like knows what they're yeah. doing does it well gets the right performances knows how it should look um gets the tone right yeah it's it's very well done and you wouldn't you know i I wouldn't have guessed it was a first-time filmmaker who made this film yeah um going back over the the movies i'll just briefly list them these these first-time films these beginner's luck movies that are in the october collection they are james gray's little odessa noah bombach's kicking and screaming paul thomas anderson's heart eight vincent gallo's buffalo 66 andre zianetskiv uh the return steve mcqueen's the hunger antonio campos after school xavier dolan i killed my mother brady corbett's the childhood of the leader barry jenkins medicine for melancholy david robert mitchell myth of the american sleepover and vadim perlman's house of santa fog probably totally unnecessary for me to relist them but i thought if you uh if you're listening to this and you and you wanted a little refresher on what we've talked about uh that would be it for you um any parting words uh, about this collection or any of the other collections Oh, you know, if you're if you've made it this far into the podcast, you obviously <laughs> are, um, you know, you're on board for what we're doing, I guess. But um, no, I mean, you know, it's just uh, it's an exciting thing to be able to program these films and have these new collections every month. Um, you know, and we are doing it. You know, October is, is there's a lot of fun films in the October collections. Everything from you know uh, a whole gothic horror section uh, to a bloodlust section to obviously this beginner's luck section. We have a, you know new films that are in the circuit and a whole short film collection. There's just you know there's a lot of great films and but there aren't too many great films. So it's not you know there's just enough to to get you by and you know not to kind of scare you. So you know. I, I also love positioning these films in these in these sections because once you watch one of them you suddenly be i become kind of addicted to that section and what else that section has to offer right no it's it's cool to like okay like you know i mean personally i like to see where these filmmakers came from and how they started out and um you know what how they were making films when they first started based on you know maybe the films that you kind of like you know love from them that are you know obviously you know the master is is amazing you know he had some he's made other films but it's like how did he get there or right. you know how, how did these filmmakers get to where they were and then i think watching new films by new filmmakers is always exciting because it's like you know you get to see a, a new voice something fresh something you know someone was like you know i keep thinking of the way that they just they had all these ideas in them and they were able to finally put them out there um and for a lot of first-time filmmakers, they use their first film as that vehicle to, like, you know, tell all these stories or tell them in the way they want to tell them. 
And or even with with some of these with some of these filmmakers, I mean, one specifically, they are kind they kind of ended up remaking this their first film. So it's like if you liked Xavier Dolan's Mommy, you mm-hmm. can watch I Killed My Mother. They're not it's not a direct remake, but it, they're very similar films. It's just like one had more of a budget for yeah. him to play with, and it, I, it feels like that's that's why he made Mommy. And so it's interesting. You know, you can watch exactly. a director like Hard Eight and you can see where some of his influences and some of his style and some of his humor came from. Or you can watch something like I Killed My Mother, which is a very sort of literal uh, depiction of a first time filmmaker in the sense that he will go on to remake that movie at a, at a later mm-hmm. day. Yeah, another another collection in October that's really exciting is it, it's all connected in there. Um, but it's, you know, films like, like Babel and uh, Mortis Peros and The Red Violin and uh you know Gamora that are just these master storytelling like so interwoven stories and you know the way they're able to put everything together um you know that's those are some of my favorite types of films Jared thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me about uh October's Beginner's Luck collection um it was a great opportunity to sit down and, and rewatch some of these movies that I've always loved, discover some new ones like The Return, and uh, just enjoy some of these these great movies. It's a wonderful collection of films. Oh, thanks, Rick. I appreciate it. I also want to thank Oscar-winning producer Adela Romanski for joining us and being pretty candid about the process of working with a first-time filmmaker, being a first-time filmmaker herself, and also being a filmmaker with a, a number of great works uh, underneath their, their belt. So Adela, thank you so much for, for joining us and also for making great movies. And uh, for those of you who uh, are closing out the podcast with us, thanks so much for listening. See you next month.